Hello, welcome to Hope Church Harrogate's Message of the Week. If you'd like to connect with us, please head over to hopeharrogate.co.uk forward slash connect. We'd love to hear from you. Wonderful. Well, good morning. My name's Adam, one of the leaders here at Hope. Um, I have the privilege of sharing this morning. We're in our series, which is called Look Again at Jesus. Um, Really based in this idea... Lots of people have lots of ideas about God, but when we look again at Jesus, what do we see? That's the premise of the series. um, It's based on the Bible, but it's based on this book about the Bible um, that's written and fully recommended. It's called Gentle and Lowly by a guy called Dane Ortland. So we've kind of um, borrowed from him to help us explain the Bible, to help us all grow in understanding Jesus. Full recommendation. And... um, A few weeks ago, I stood here, and I started the series by saying we were going to look at the only time that Jesus talks about his heart in the Bible. Do you remember that? And we we saw he said, I am gentle and humble in heart. That was week one. Since then, we've seen that God says he, he doesn't cast out, so I will not cast you out. We've seen that he's gentle, and we've seen that he's merciful. And it's been brilliant. I've loved it. I enjoyed watching Rachel back because we were away from a fortnight ago when she spoke on the gentleness of God. If you've not seen it, fully recommend it. Um, But there is a small danger in that if you hear those four weeks, the picture that they could create in your head of God is essentially a big cuddly teddy bear who's just lovely all the time. Because that's what we think of when we hear about gentleness and humility, and someone who will never cast you out. There's a a famous piece of art. Um, I don't know if you recognize this. We have the picture of the Sacred Heart of Cisio. I mean, this is a a, a very common Catholic picture. You you may well have seen it. If you've ever been on holiday to a hot Catholic country and you've been in one of those big, ornate churches, you will have seen this picture somewhere in there. Um, And if you can speak French, it Sounds even better in French, but in English, it's the sacred heart. And, uh, and it's trying to depict the heart of God in art form. Now, if you saw that, you might not think humble, gentle, as the first couple of words to try and describe it. And my challenge today is to try and help us understand an extra element of the heart of God that helps us have a more correct view because God is not your heavenly teddy bear. And Matthew 11, where I started a few weeks ago, is not the only place that the Bible talks about the heart of God. It's the only place Jesus talks about his heart, but there are several other places that the Bible talks about the heart of God, and today we're going to look at one of those. It's in a book called Lamentations, chapter 3, verse 33. So if you've got a Bible, you can start flicking there if you like. And what you need to know about Lamentations is it is an exquisitely designed poem. I'm not a poet in any shape or form, but I can see the poetic genius of Lamentations. It's quite high, brother, so to ease us in, I've got another poem for us to appreciate the exquisite design of. Susio, if you wouldn't mind. Um, You might have seen this one um, on Facebook or your own social media thing of choice. Uh, It's called Needles, and it says, I wrote a poem in the shape of a Christmas tree, 
but then forgot to water it. And only a few days later, there were words all over the carpet. That, for me, is genius design. Guy, by a guy called Brian Bilston. Um, Lamentations is not quite in the same form as that poem. Lamentations is an acrostic. Remember acrostics? You did them at primary school, where you wrote a word down the side, and then you wrote your lines. So each line begins with a different letter. And it's a Hebrew acrostic. It's in five sections, and each one is an acrostic in itself. If you open your Bible, you'll find there's five chapters in Lamentations, and chapters 1, 2, 4, and 5 each have 22 verses, because 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet. He says, looking at Dan, really hoping that's correct. And the middle chapter is three acrostics. goes through the Hebrew alphabet three times. And in the middle one of those three is a verse. So it's the middle of the middle of the middle of the middle, which is like the highest point in Jewish writing. And that's the verse we're going to read today. Are you ready? It's talking about the heart of God. Lamentations 3, verse 3. If you've got your Bible, you can read it in there. He does not afflict from his heart or grieve the children of men. If you're reading in the NIV, it says he does not willingly afflict, but the Hebrew is from his heart. Should we say this together? For he does not afflict from his heart or grieve the children of men. Let me give you some context for why this is being written. Lamentations is a lament, if you hadn't made that connection already. It's written by someone we think probably Jeremiah, who also has another book next to Lamentations in the Bible. And he is lamenting the fall of Jerusalem. So 6th century BC, 2,700-ish years ago, the city of Jerusalem and the people of God were conquered. An enormous army, far bigger than them, from a much bigger country, led by an evil and slightly deranged leader, march in and utterly destroy Jerusalem, capture a bunch of people, and take them back to Babylon. It was a horrific event. Painful, heartbreaking. And it's quite shocking to us to consider that that might happen. But as you read the story, and I said this when we looked at Isaiah before Christmas, Actually, as you read through the story of the Old Testament that leads up to that moment, it isn't the ferocity of the attack that takes you by surprise. It's the utter, relentless patience of God. Because for decades and decades and decades, he's been saying, if you keep doing the things you're doing, disaster will come. Parents in the room feel like they've said that to people before. If you keep doing the thing you're doing, disaster will come. If you keep doing the horrible things that you are doing, disaster will come. And he sends them warnings, he sends them prophets that they murder. He blesses them, which they reject. They see miracles, which they turn a blind eye to. And repeatedly and repeatedly, they run away to every other God that they could do and reject the God of Israel, the living God. And time after time, God says, if you keep doing what you're doing, disaster will come. If you keep doing what you're doing, disaster will come. You should stop it. You should turn. Come back to me. I'm good. I'm kind. You've seen this. If you keep doing what you're doing, disaster will come. Friends, guess what? 
They kept doing what they were doing. Guess what? Disaster came. A great army came from another nation and obliterated them. What God said would happen, happens. He warns them, he corrects them, he patiently tries to pull them to himself, but they reject him, and what he says will happen, happens. And scripture is very clear about two things, in this passage especially. Number one, Jerusalem was overthrown by a violent, brutal army from a much bigger nation as a consequence of the leader's pride and wickedness. And I will leave you to draw contemporary comparisons. Secondly, the scriptures are clear about this. God sent them. It was a consequence of a wicked leader and evil actions that God sent. And if we think God is a giant cuddly bear in the sky, we find ourselves bumping into a problem right now. If the only thing we ever hear about God is that he is good, kind, and gentle, we find ourselves with a problem. Because it says he does not afflict from his heart, but it doesn't say he does not afflict. Aren't you glad you came this morning? Shall we look a little bit closer and see if we might wrestle some understanding from this situation? Would you like that? Good. Open your Bibles to Lamentations 3. We're going to read some more than just verse 33 because you can say whatever you like if you take a verse of the Bible. You need to look at what's around it to make sure it's correct. We're going to read a few verses from this chapter and I'm going to attempt to to draw out both evidence for what I've just said and something to help us on our way through to understanding. So let's read the first three verses of the chapter together. It says, I am the man who has seen affliction. By the rod of the Lord's wrath. So wrath is like a steady, settled state of anger. It's not a blazing temper. It's important we don't really understand that word. He has driven me away and made me walk in darkness rather than light. Indeed, he has turned his hand against me again and again all day long. This is how the um, lamenter feels but is also an accurate representation of what has happened. Skip down a few verses, we'll read verse 13. He pierced my heart with arrows from his quiver. I became the laughingstock of all my people. They mock me in song all day long. He's filled me with bitter herbs and given me gall to drink. Verse 19, I remember my affliction and my wandering, the bitterness and the gall, I will remember them, and my soul is downcast within me. Yet this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed, for his compassions never fail. I tell you what, Reading this stuff is really helpful in life because it doesn't always go well. And it's only when we read stuff like this where it's not going well and we see a mature response that we learn. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. You can sing with me if you like that line if you've been in church a while. They are new every morning. New every morning. 
Great is your faithfulness. I say to myself, the Lord is my portion, therefore I will wait for him. The Lord is good to those whose hope is in him, to the one who seeks him. It is good to wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man, and probably a person here, to bear the yoke while he is young. Let them sit alone in silence, for the Lord has laid it on him. Let him bury his face in the dust. There may yet be hope. Let him offer his cheek to one who would strike him, and let him be filled with disgrace. For no one is cast off by the Lord forever. Though he brings grief, he will show compassion. So great is his unfailing love. For he does not willingly bring affliction or grief to anyone. He does not afflict from his heart. Here's what we've just read and how we're going to understand the problem I've presented to you. Compassion wins. Compassion wins. Wrath, Susie, there's a slide for this one. Wrath is not an attribute of God. It's really important we understand this. Many people in the world think that God is angry. And that's, if you get down the heart of God, he's just angry. Like an angry old man whose garden you keep kicking your football in, who doesn't want to get it back for you again. And you suffer the rot. I'm not scarred from my childhood, don't worry. So many people are scared of going to God because they're convinced they're going to encounter an angry God. Maybe that's your story. But wrath is not an attribute of God. Mercy is. In eternity future, once Jesus has returned, evil is destroyed, death is no more, sickness does not occur... And heaven and the kingdom of God are established upon the earth. There will be no wrath in the heart of God. But right now there is. And let me tell you, it is good news. Let me tell you why it's good news. Because if there were not, it would mean he was indifferent to the wrongs of the world. It would mean that he was immune to the consequences of sin and suffering. But God is not indifferent to the wrongs of the world, and God is not immune to the consequences of sin and suffering. He is deeply grieved. And because he is all-powerful, and because he is merciful, he acts to say no to things that are wrong. Aren't you glad that God might say no to things that are wrong? Think about it for a moment. Would you rather have a God who says no that is wrong, or I don't care. I see what's going on in your life, but I don't care. I saw how they treated you, but I'm just a cuddly teddy bear in the sky. Because God is compassionate, because God is merciful, he's not indifferent to the wrongs of the world. He says no to them because of his love. And the The lamenter who writes Lamentations 3 is explaining that God has said no to the people of God because wickedness is in the heart of those people out of love that they might turn and come to him. If he let them continue, evilness would prosper and multiply and grow. And he warns them, if you keep doing that, disaster will come. Eventually disaster comes and God uses it to say no to what is wrong. Verse 32 that we just read says, 
Though he brings grief, he will show compassion. So great is his unfailing love. Friends, what we need to know is this. Judgment is not the joy of God. He doesn't delight in doing it. He's not looking around eagerly for a situation where he can put his wig on, get his gavel out and start judging. In fact, there's a reluctance in the heart of God to judge. But he does judge because mercy wins. Who was here two weeks ago when Rachel spoke, gentleness of God? Remember her story about her year of disobedience? I've watched on YouTube. You too can watch on YouTube if you like, if you weren't here. And she tells you this story. I've checked. I can retell her story, by the way. Don't often tell other people's stories. About her year of disobedience. She said she kind of, in her university life, went, do you know what? I'm going to sack off being good, and I'm going to not hand things in on time and not really try hard. Do you remember the story, those of you who were here? And the consequence was <clears throat> that she got told not to come back to university the next year. That's the consequence of the story. And she told the story about how then she went away and considered herself, and she came back to the university and said, I really want to come back. And they said, you need a sponsor from the academic staff to say yes, you can come back. And she went, in spite of fear and trepidation, and asked one of the professors that she'd known, and she encountered life-changing gentleness. He welcomed her back in, and she's now like the cleverest person I know. Here's what we need to realize about the story that Rachel didn't pull out because it wasn't her point, but I need to pull out for us to understand. The whole of the way through her year of disobedience, do you know what that professor that eventually was her sponsor did? He warned her. Hey, Rachel, come on. You've got to sort yourself out. You've got to try harder. You've got to hand just a fin on time. He coached her. He corrected her. And do you know what she did? La, 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 la. She didn't listen. I've checked the details with her. I'm not making this up. He did. He warned her. And at the end of the year, when she failed her exams, he was part of the organization that said to her, no, you can't come back. We've got to realize this. What was the consequence of, no, you can't come back? She stepped back and she went, what is in me that I don't want in me? Why have I done this? And am I okay with that? And she concluded, no, I'm not okay with it. And she went back to the university. She said, I am sorry, I want to come back and study. Please may I study. And she encountered incredible gentleness from the very person that she'd rejected all the way through the year and had personally failed. That was the one who showed her gentleness. Tell you what, her story is the best analogy I could find, which is why I'm using it again for the point I'm making which is that wrath is not an attribute of God. Mercy is. But that doesn't mean that sometimes he doesn't say no and it hurts. Hebrews 12 says this. There's not a slide for it, sorry. Hebrews 12 verse 7, Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as his children. For what children are not disciplined by their father? If you're not disciplined and everyone undergoes discipline then you are not legitimate. You're not true sons and daughters at all. We've all had human fathers who disciplined us and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the Father of spirits and live? They disciplined us for a little while as they thought best, 
But God disciplines us for our good in order that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. It's the point I'm trying to make. I hope I'm doing a good job. If what you're hearing today is that the suffering in your life is your own fault because you did bad stuff and God is now punishing you, that's not what I'm saying. If that's what you're hearing, I'm doing a bad job. What I'm saying is that in the heart of God, you will always encounter mercy. But sometimes that mercy means he says no and it hurts. And we see this in the life of Jesus because this series is called Look Again at Jesus. And some people, they create this difference between God and Jesus. I mean, there's a guy called Marcion who got declared a heretic. He thought there was one God in the Old Testament and then Jesus was a new God. And all the you know, leaders in the church went, nah, mate, you got that wrong. Get out. He edited the Bible to suit his own purposes as well, but that's a whole other conversation. should talk to your relevant RS teacher about that. So many people live under the illusion that the God of the Old Testament is angry and that Jesus is a nice one that turns his anger aside. Maybe that's what you think. If I pushed you, I bet I could get you to admit it. We so often do. We like Jesus. But let me tell you, Jesus, he says no to people and it hurts. Here's an example. You'll find this in Luke chapter 9. James and John, two of his inner three, are walking along the road with Jesus one day just after they've been sent out and they've seen loads of people turn to Jesus and miracles. And they've sent messengers ahead to a village in Samaria where they'd like to stay. And the village in Samaria say, no, you can't stay here because you're going to Jerusalem. There was like a rivalry thing, falling out thing going on. And James and John turn to Jesus and say, shall we call down fire from heaven upon them? First of all, what on earth did they see when they saw the miracles to make them think that they could call fire down from heaven upon them? They're walking on the road. Hey, Jesus, shall we uh, call fire down? Jesus turns around and he rebukes them in front of everybody else. Ever been told off in front of people? How does it feel? Face goes red. Heart skips a beat. Threat system clicks into play. Am I going to fight? Or am I going to run away? We don't like it. It hurts. But that's what Jesus did. He's like, no. Because if that's how they think this is going to work, there's no way they can do what they're doing with him. He's going to entrust the advance of his kingdom and the building of his church to these people. If that's how they think this works, when people say no, he's got a problem. He's got to say no, that they might see the way it should happen. Here's another one. Nicodemus. I've just been re-watching The Chosen. We use the pictures on the slides. Just finished season one with Nicodemus. And I don't want to, no spoilers, right? But it is in the Bible. And you're like pleading with him, go around the corner, Nicodemus, go with them. And then you're like, oh, he didn't do it. You see the pain in his, anyway, you should watch it. Nicodemus comes to Jesus, John chapter 3, and he's talking, and he keeps asking Jesus questions, and Jesus says something to him. He says, are you not Israel's teacher? Shouldn't you understand this? Nicodemus was like the elite of teachers. And she's like, aren't you a teacher? Don't you get this? That's a no. 
That's a painful, I need to consider my life kind of no. Let me tell you, I'm pretty convinced Nicodemus did go away and consider his life. Because at the end of John's Gospel, what you find is he and Joseph of Arimathea approaching Pilate for the body of Jesus. And Nicodemus, out of his own pocket, has purchased the spices that are necessary to embalm the body of Jesus before it's buried. That's the act of a man who came to understand, I think. The no transformed his perspective. I've told Rachel's story. I've told some Bible stories. We'd like a story about my life. You guys are mean. I'm supposed to say, no, Adam, it's fine. Move on. I remember, I've got so many stories of things like this. I remember one time in particular, I was standing at church talking to my friends by the coffee. Anyone ever done that? Yeah? Um, church was a bit smaller then. We were still at St. Aidan's and uh, meeting in the main hall there. Having a lovely conversation with my friend, coffee in hand. And John Payne, who... Um, used to lead the church, and we sent off to Vancouver with his family before COVID. He, he walked up to me with, what's the word? Um, anger in his eyes. And he looked at me and he went, stop talking to your friends and go and talk to new people. <laughs> my face went red. My heart started beating. My threat system kicks in. I'm like, am I going to fight? Am I going to run? Or do I need to stop and look at myself and go, there are loads of new people in this room. I can talk to my friend anytime I like, but this might be the only moment they get shown the kind of love that I want them to experience. No. But it changed something in me. Got to look out for the new person first. It's deep in the DNA of this church. I'm probably, I know I'm not the only person that John did that to. <laughs> Some of you have similar stories. We used to have um, many awkward conversations on a Tuesday morning. Sometimes I didn't really want to go into the office on a Tuesday morning. Because when you work with people, right, you have disagreements from time to time. That's just human nature. And sometimes you'd go in and you'd have to say, so are we okay? Because you were a bit off on Sunday. Still happens now, doesn't it, Ruth? Ruth and I have done this together too. Both directions. It's called love. So, are you okay? You were a bit off on Sunday. Were you okay? You were very short with me. John one time came in, I'm sitting at my desk, and he said, So, are we okay? And I went, Yep. <laughs> He's like, Should we go for coffee? I was like, oh. Go on then. He said, Adam, I know when you're not okay because you get very short. Not short, but like short with people. I was like, yeah. And we talk it out. No, it's not okay. If you run with that kind of grit in the system of friendships, what happens? They fall apart. Resentment grows, bitterness grows, you grow apart. You can't do that. You can't just let stuff roll. You've got to say, are we okay? Depending on the relationship, sometimes you need to say no. I've told you the story, if you've been here a while, of my friend Sam, who took me out for a beer once, coffee, beer, some kind of drink when you, you know you're in trouble. And uh, I ordered a pint, and then he ordered a half pint, and that was the moment I knew he was about to correct me. 
He said, Adam, I've been watching you do this, this, and this. It's really unhealthy. You need to stop. Finished his half pint and walked off. <laughs> Left me in the beer garden with my full pint. This is helping? I've got a quote for you by a guy called Ashley Null. Three-time Olympic chaplain. It's a good one. In the Christian life, God takes each one of his children on journeys they do not wish to go. He makes them travel by roads they do not wish to use. Also, he can bring them to places they never wish to leave. With Jesus' pain, no matter how great, even when of Olympic-sized proportions, never has the last word. It's a good one, that. book of Job, if you don't know the story, he suffers a lot. <laughs> Is that a good, a, a good description? Thanks. Job 23.10, he says this, when he has tested me, when he, God, has tested me, I shall come forth as gold. It's not a pass-fail test, but it's a refining test. The word means two things. I shall come forth as gold. So many times in my life I've held on to that verse. It is not easy right now, but there's a testing of what's inside of me, and the result will be gold, even though it isn't pleasant now. No discipline is pleasant at the time. So I want to be clear at this moment. I am not saying that all pain is from God, but I am saying that nothing is beyond the reach of God to rescue you from and to use in what he's doing in your life. It's really important that we know those two things. But the central heart of the message this morning is this. God does not delight in judgment. He does delight in mercy. He is not looking for the moment when he gets to say no. It doesn't thrill him like some overactive policeman. No, what he's looking for is the moment to show mercy. What he's looking for is the moment to bless What he's looking for is the moment to lavish love out. That's what gets God excited. That's what flows most naturally from his heart. If you poke the heart of God, it's blessing and love and compassion that flow out. But because of that, he has to say no to that which is wrong. We use the word grace here a fair amount, and this is the value of grace for us. Grace accepts us as we are, but refuses to leave us that way. That's what we're talking about. God accepts you as you are. If you come to God, you will encounter mercy. You will encounter love. You will encounter grace. But because of that, he cannot leave you as you are. He will say no to some things in your life. And you'll go, oh yeah, I don't want that. Like the doctor who does the body scan and says, we need to take that out. When they say that, you don't say, no, it's fine, I quite like it in there. You say, yes, get that cancerous growth out of me, please. Do whatever it takes. Alexander Solzhenitsyn is a Russian writer. Spent time in the gulag. He wrote this. The line separating good and evil passes not through states, nor between classes, nor between political parties either, but right through every human heart and through all human hearts. Next slide, it continues. 
If only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds, and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being, and who is willing to destroy a piece of his own heart? That is a good quote. And the answer to his question is God. Should we look at Lamentations 3 again? You see, each and every moment of the chapter that we read before, you find in the life and death of Jesus. Lamentations 3, verses 1 to 3, I am the man who has seen affliction by the rod of the Lord's wrath. His no. He's driven me away and made me walk in darkness rather than light. Indeed, he has turned his hand against me again and again all day long. This is from Jesus who hung on the cross, nails through his hands and ankles and cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He knew what it was in that moment to be plunged into the darkness that's caused by sin. The one who had never sinned, the one who had always been united with the Father in that moment, understood the lamentation we find here. Verse 13, he pierced my heart with arrows from his quiver. I became the laughingstock of all my people. They mock me in song all day long. He's filled me with bitter herbs and given me gall to drink. When Jesus hung on the cross, a Roman soldier came along with a spear. And where did he put it? Right into Jesus' heart. Pierced his heart sack. Blood and water flowed out. He was roundly mocked. A crown of thorns was thrust onto his head. He was beaten and laughed at. They mocked him again and again. When he hung on the cross and said he was thirsty, they held bitter wine and herbs up for him to drink from a sponge on a stick. I remember my affliction, verse 19, and my wandering. The bitterness and the gall, I well remember them. My soul is downcast within me. Yet this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed, for his compassions never fail. Whilst hanging on the cross, Jesus cried out, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. They are new every morning. On the third day, when his followers went to the tomb to finish the embalming process that was truncated by the beginning of the Sabbath, they arrived and found the stone rolled away. They found the grave was empty because even the morning after the cross, the compassion of God was new. The Lord is good to those whose hope is in him, to the one who seeks him. No one is cast off by the Lord forever, verse 31. Though he brings grief, he will show compassion. So great is his unfailing love, for he does not afflict from his heart. 
My friends, the crucifixion of Jesus broke the power of evil, sin, sickness, and death. There is nothing that God would say no to whose power is not already broken and that he has not done everything necessary in order to remove from our lives and from the world. Can we have the picture of the heart back up, Susie? Thank you. I said at the beginning, we mustn't think that God is a cuddly teddy bear. But this is the artwork that's been produced through the ages by people who have meditated on what is God's heart like. And you see the cross at the very top, the act that shows us the heart of God. You see the fire coming off the top of the heart because God is a consuming fire and purifies all things that come close to him. Friends, evil cannot stand in his presence. Just like darkness flees as light comes because they cannot coexist. So when you come into the presence of God, wickedness falls. That's why Isaiah cries out, Woe to me, I'm a man of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the king. You see the crown of thorns wrapped around that heart, puncturing it, and you see, if you squint or come closer, the wound in the side where the spear went in. Alexander Soltsenitz, something or other, Russian name, he says, Who would destroy a part of their heart? to remove evil? My friends, the answer is God. And whilst the theologian in me wants to make all kinds of accommodation right now and nuance, that's close enough. Jesus suffered and died. God himself suffered and died to remove the power of evil and death from your life. There is no suffering that God is not in control of. And there is nothing in your life that God cannot reach into and change. It does not delight him to judge or say no. What delights him is the mercy that rushes in afterwards because his compassions are new every morning. But we must understand this. God hates evil and it will not stand. Sometimes that's rather painful, but it is good news for each and every one of us. We're going to worship again to finish. Can I invite you, if you're able, to stand and we'll pray? Just want to pray very simply, friends. I'll realize that's something of a different message. Just take a moment to look to God you find closing your eyes stops you getting distracted then feel free looking up looking down hands out whatever just want to pray for us as we finish father we thank you that your mercy means that you do not show indifference to evil We thank you, Lord, that where we suffer at the hands of others, we know that they are not above you. And that in all situations, you can both rescue us and work in us to make us more like your son, Jesus. Father, we thank you that your mercy is new every morning. Thank you that your faithfulness doesn't fail. We thank you that your compassion lasts forever 
And we pray that we would be those familiar with your compassion and mercy, being transformed into the likeness of Jesus for the sake of the world around us, even when it hurts. We pray, come. Come to the midst of the situations we face this morning. Would your mercy flow like a river? Would the finger of your spirit touch the things in our lives that you're dealing with? The things that might need removing? And would we see again your holiness and power, your love and compassion this morning? Amen.